0: i'm avery smith of the rock candy podcast network and you're listening to blessed are the binary breakers a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories Hey y'all! Since it's the Halloween month, do you want to hear something spooky? The gender binary. Ooh! This is another episode about syncretism, the merging of beliefs and traditions from multiple religions that takes place in a variety of circumstances. Last time we talked about St. Brigid, this time around I want to tell you about a video game I finished a couple weeks ago that drew me into the spiritual landscape of rural Russia. Now, I am something of a novice when it comes to video games, and I certainly never thought I would make a podcast episode about one, but Black Book, this game created by an independent studio in Russia called Morteshka, was just so good, and revived my passion for folklore that I have to talk about it. And given that it's a game full of ghosts and demons, October seems like the perfect time to do so. Black Book takes place in 19th century rural Russia, an officially Christian land, but it becomes clear that the region's older religions live on in how that Christianity is practiced. You play as Vasilisa, a young sorceress who is trying to break all seven seals of the Black Book to save her fiancé. On the way, you help various people you come across and unlock encyclopedia-like entries with cultural or religious information. The stories you unlock are based on authentic folklore, as Morteshka consulted with an ethnographer and received support from the Perm Museum of Local Lore to create their game. As you read these entries and interact with various characters, the mingling of indigenous traditions and Christianity becomes evident. One of the game's encyclopedic entries describes the religious landscape of the region in which Black Book takes place thus. The earls offer a peculiar blend of religions. The veiled paganism of Russian Christianity is overlaid by the paganism of native peoples, who are not always Christianized. For instance, some of the Mari and Udmurt peoples did not adopt Christianity, but kept their ancestors' traditions. The Komi people adopted the new religion, but mixed in their former beliefs. It is simply impossible to discuss the religious situation in this region without the singular notion of double belief. And what is double belief? In this region of Russia and elsewhere, the communities that adopted Christianity over the years continued to believe in their indigenous deities, not as gods any longer, but as evil spirits working for hell. This concept, the encyclopedia says, is best characterized by the notion of double belief, an everyday mingling of one's religious beliefs and a worldview that includes elements of two religions. Double belief is a sort of tenuous indecisiveness about both religions people believe in both christian dogmas and esoteric teachings. My favorite example of this experience in the game involves one of the spirits that Vesilisa defeats and adds to her pester, or a collection of demons that she can bend to her will. I won't spoil which spirit it is, but it turns out that this spirit, now beheld as demonic, was once a major god. When Christians destroyed his place of worship, and built a church on top of it, and people stopped worshiping him, he eventually lost his powers and memories of being a god, remembering only his new identity. Playing the game and uncovering that story, I felt a strange sense of love and loss. I admit to discomfort at the idea of other people's gods being demoted by my religion and literally demonized, made into devils. But the way the character in this game discovers his past identity is that we uncover a statue of him that had been hidden away, protected from destruction by one of his devotees in a century-long past. The beliefs and customs that people cherish and rely on to navigate their world are very difficult to fully erase. They live on, either underground or through syncretism. And happily, not all spirits revered in Slavic pagan traditions were reshaped into demonic figures. Ancestral spirits remained important guardians of the home under the name Domovoi, household spirits, with a saying that went, No house stands without Domovoi. Meanwhile, a house's red corner also remained a vital part of the home, the place in the house where the veil between the physical and spiritual worlds was thinnest. Most likely, the game's encyclopedia says, ancestral idols were once placed atop these shrines. Following the arrival of Christianity, it became home to the icons of the saints. When entering an izba, or house, a visitor would make the sign of the cross over themselves while looking at the red corner, even if there were no icons present. Something you can't help but notice as the game progresses is just how often these Russian peasants crossed themselves which, if you're unfamiliar with the idea, is when you form a cross over yourself by lifting your right hand to your forehead, then down to your navel, then up to one shoulder and across to the other shoulder. Catholic and Orthodox Christians make this sign of the cross before and after prayer even today. Protestants typically do not. In Black Book, characters who forget to cross themselves before eating a meal or entering a building invite demons into their lives. The game describes these kinds of rituals thus, It is often believed that specific events are a consequence of another. For instance, a peasant suffering misfortune after forgetting to cross himself is perceived as being punished for not observing a ritual. This has resulted in all sorts of popular beliefs. Dishes not locked away at night or crossed become a refuge for evil spirits. A sick child, or a changeling, needs to be thrown across the threshold of a house inhabited by spirits who were lured there by the killing of a rooster during its construction. After some time, the underlying reason for a ritual becomes forgotten, leaving only the ritual itself. Some of the rituals explored in the game connect to specific Christian saints, even while interaction with those saints maintains a pagan element. For instance, the game's encyclopedia relates, Fishermen, when they had a good haul, made an offering to Saint Nicholas by smearing the lips of his likeness with fish blood. The same was done by hunters. Peasants could also punish the saint. Whenever a cow was lost in the forest or mauled by beasts, a peasant would carry an icon to the stables and whip it with reins. When I read that, the Catholic in me cringed at the idea of whipping an icon, an image of a saint created with care as an act of devotion. But I also love what the act says about how these people viewed saints, not merely as powerful figures far off in heaven, but as people with whom they had real relationships. They viewed saints as members of their community with responsibilities like any other member would have. Here's how Jesus' mother Mary was typically viewed, for example. Among the peasantry, the cult of the Virgin Mary was different from how the Church depicts her. She was more down-to-earth, and made her presence known in everyday activities. She is more sympathetic, and acts as a helper in difficult situations, a protector against evil spirits, and an intercessor in heaven. And then there was Saint John the Baptist, or Ivan as he's known in Russian. As with Bridget's feast day in the last episode, Russian holidays offer a keen glimpse into the merging of Slavic, pagan, and Christian beliefs. As the game's encyclopedia entry titled Pagan Holidays explains, almost all Russian calendar holidays overlap with traditional pagan holidays. The holiday we get to experience within the game's storyline is Kupala night. Kupala comes from the Russian word for baptismal font, kupol. It's the feast day of John the Baptist. The Games Encyclopedia describes Kupala Night, also called Ivan Kupala, as a Christian variant of a pagan rite that took place on the summer solstice of June 24th. The Orthodox variant is meant to coincide with John the Baptist's birthday, but the holiday has stayed pagan in essence. On the morning of Ivan, people prepared a whole grain porridge, kutya. They did so on all the other transition-cycle holidays, on days that opened the borders between worlds. On the night of Ivan, young people leapt over burning fires in order to cleanse themselves. Girls weaved wreaths of grass and flowers. The wreath played an important role. It was used to see evil spirits, to become godparents, or sworn siblings if it was exchanged as a sign of eternal friendship. Wreaths were naturally used in divination. In northern Russian traditions, girls sent the wreaths downriver from a bridge with a burning candle attached. If the wreath veered to the opposite shore, her future husband would be from another village. If it veered to the same shore, her husband would be from the home village. If the wreath sank, it meant imminent death. Swimming naked in a river was also an ancient tradition. Cleansing could be performed with fire, water, or earth, three out of the four elements. On this day, rural roads were plowed so that matchmakers would arrive sooner, or a furrow was made in front of a young man's house to compel him to propose sooner. In this world where saints and demons alike had real influence over the physical realm and carried the imprints of other religions in their core, where do witches like our playable character, Vasilisa, come in? Throughout the game, Vasilisa is referred to not only as a sorceress, but also as a knower. What makes her powerful is the special knowledge she possesses. She knows all about spirits and how to defend against or take control of their influence, and she also knows a lot about herbs and how to use them in medicine. Within the game, sorcerers are believed to have given their soul over to the devil in order to acquire the knowledge and power they wield. This naturally causes peasants to view Vasilisa and her fellow magic users with suspicion and fear, even when they seek out her help. Whether they love or hate her, or express a mix of both, just about everyone recognizes Vasilisa as a possessor of great knowledge and skill that she can either use for them or against them, as someone who inhabits the space between human and spirit, earth and hell. Moreover, in the several encounters with Christian priests throughout the game, it becomes evident that the church has officially condemned Vasilisa's line of work. In these encounters, I see the tension between the now-dominant religion and the religion it overshadowed but could not completely erase. More than anyone else, sorcerers inhabit the intersection of Christianity and Slavic paganisms. Their predecessors of long past centuries were revered as vital figures in the community. In the game's 19th century setting, they maintained some of that reverence by incorporating a syncretic Christianity into their work. The church might not like it and priests might not appreciate having to share their influence in people's lives with witches, but so long as there is illness and misfortune that the common folk seek to explain and gain some agency over, these magical knowers are here to stay. Hey, I'm Andrew. And I'm John. Our show, Magnified Pod, is the only podcast that discusses culture, religion, politics, and deep dives into the discographies of the bands that shaped a generation of 90s youth group kids. Check out Magnified Pod on the Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. This tension between church and practitioners of old magics reminds me of the information imparted in Leslie Feinberg's 1996 book, Transgender Warriors. Zee writes about the Catholic Christianity further west and further back in time than Black Book's setting, but that tension is evident there, too. As Feinberg explains, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church was Western Europe's largest landowner, claiming ownership of an entire third of all land. To maintain its hold on that wealth, it was necessary to convince peasants that private ownership of the land was divinely inspired. What stood in the Church's way in this task? Connections to the religions that came before Christianity's rise to power. Many indigenous European communities were structured communally, with all land held in common, and their beliefs reflected that. That is why, Feinberg says, the old beliefs had to die, and witches and pagan priests with them. And here is where transgender history comes in. Many of the rituals of old involved what the church perceived as cross-dressing, As Feinberg explains, The association of transgender expression with communal religious worship and beliefs so enraged the Christian hierarchy that in 691 CE, the Council of Constantinople decreed, We forbid dances and initiation rites of the gods, as they are falsely called among the Greeks, since, whether by men or women, they are done according to an ancient custom contrary to the Christian way of life and we decree that no man shall put on a woman's dress, nor a woman clothes that belong to a man. The church tried to demonize transgender expression by linking it with witchcraft, and by banning and suppressing it in all peasant rituals and celebrations. Sixth- and seventh-century synods repeatedly condemned cross-dressing during the popular New Year's holiday, In the 9th century, a Christian guidebook dictated penance for men who practiced ritual cross-dressing and cross-gender behavior. And yet, despite all these bans against trans expression, it continued, so much so that even some of the individuals who came to be honored by the Catholic Church had non-binary ways of experiencing gender. Feinberg notes that a good twenty or twenty-five canonized medieval saints had been assigned female at birth, yet dressed and lived as men. Z writes, I believe that since a fusion of matrilineal beliefs with patriarchal culture was prevalent during the early development of class society, these cross-gendered saints could be attributed to the persistence of ancient worship and beliefs about transgender. More than a century ago, German scholar Hermann Usener argued that the similarity of the legends about female to male saints represented survival of the beliefs surrounding the goddess Aphrodite of Cyprus. Usener noted that Aphrodite was also named Pelagia and Marina, the same names as two of the cross-dressed Catholic saints. Aphrodite's female followers reportedly dressed in men's garb to sacrifice to her, and male-to-female transsexual priestesses served this goddess as well. Feinberg continues Zier argument with the specific example of Saint Joan of Arc, a French peasant woman who cut her hair in a man's style and insisted that she wore men's clothing at God's command. If you're interested in more of Joan of Arc's story, check out episode 21 of this podcast. For now, here's one part of what Feinberg says of Joan. Of course she made the French rulers tremble. This transgender female saint led a peasant army. I believe the French nobility feared both Joan of Arc's assertion that her transgender expression was a religious duty and the fact that her transgender expression was held in such reverence by the peasants, because both recalled beliefs in an ancient rival religion from a competing economic system. I think the Church Fathers may have canonized a constellation of female-to-male trans saints because they were forced to compete with the old religion still popularly embraced by the peasants. The Church hierarchy must have had a tough time trying to convert peasants from their joyous, pro-sexual, cross-gendered religious rites to the gloom and doom of medieval Catholicism. I believe the clerics tried to co-opt popular images of transgender, but with a twist, these female-to-male saints were remarkably pious. Trans images that drew the devotion of peasants to the religion of the owning class would have been valuable in recruitment. Church leaders would move between accepting such behavior so long as they could rebrand it in a Christian way and waging war against it. For instance, Feinberg writes, the Holy Inquisition, begun in 1233, and the witch trials were weapons of terror and mass murder that took a staggering toll on human life from Ireland to Poland. 20 years after Joan of Arc's execution in 1451, the Inquisition was officially authorized to battle witchcraft as a major crime. Many peasant women, accused of being witches, were tortured and killed. These included women who followed the older, rural-based religions, lived independently, held small amounts of land, or passed down folk medicinal knowledge, such as midwives who shared their knowledge of birth control and abortion. Significantly, witches were accused of having the power to change sex. This is because, as Feinberg writes, Because of the feudal landlord's economic interest in strengthening patriarchal inheritance and rule, they increasingly partitioned the sexes in the name of God. This drive to differentiate man from woman fueled a frenzied campaign against intersexuality. Trans people, women charged with lesbianism, gay men, Muslims, Jews, herbalists, healers, anyone who challenged feudal rule was considered a threat and faced extermination. The inquisitors came armed with the Bible as well as with swords and instruments of torture to put down peasant uprisings. But all the might of the feudal landowners did not crush the resistance of the peasants once and for all. They continually rose up against the rule of powerful landlords and their feudal theology. Just as the old faiths could not be eradicated in medieval Western Europe, so it was in 19th century Russia, as Black Book illustrates. Though priests comment on the sinfulness of turning to a knower like Vasilisa for help against demons, peasants continued to do so regardless. Indeed, there is even one priest in the game who begs for Vasilisa's aid himself. He may not like it, but he cannot deny her power. He acknowledges that the two of them, sorceress and priest, share spiritual power and the devotion of the people. So yeah, that's Black Book, with some stuff from Leslie Feinberg's book peppered in just because I can never resist talking about transgender warriors whenever I get the chance. I totally recommend giving this game a try, especially as Halloween approaches. It's available on Steam to download to Mac or PC, it's on the Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One, and it's going for 25 US dollars right now. I will let you know the gameplay is not perfect. Black Book was put together by a team of just five people, after all, but the storyline and folklore make it absolutely worthwhile. And if you're like me and not particularly good at video games, there's an extra easy mode that I switched to about halfway through so that I could stop spending a million years on duels that were supposed to be simple. Or if you don't feel like paying for it and playing it yourself, you can watch playthroughs of Black Book on YouTube. One extra cool thing about the game is that there are alternate endings depending on how you choose to play Vasilisa. Do you lean into the people's fear of knowers and make Vasilisa occasionally intimidate or curse them? Or do you defy that view of sorcerers and have her refuse to curse anyone or set demons upon them? Either way, it's a really fun game and perfect for the Halloween season. On the topic of Halloween, if you haven't already listened to my episode all about Halloween's syncretic and queer origins, you should check it out. It's episode 29, titled Halloween is a Queer Thing, from Celtic peasants to LGBT communities in the US. There's more stuff in there about the tension between the Catholic Church and prevailing beliefs among the peasantry, if that's something you want to hear more about. That's it for now. Stay tuned for another episode that I'm hoping to post at the end of October, all about the power of names. In the meantime, Go break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.